Well, today we're going to keep going. Um, if you weren't here last week, if you weren't here last week and you don't know what happened, well, today's going to be interesting then because you're jumping into the middle of a sermon. Um, like, we're already halfway through the sermon and you all just showed up, so you may not even know what's going on. Um, I did something last week that I've never done before, and it's kind of strange, but I'm preaching a sermon over two weeks. Um, I didn't have enough time. I didn't feel like to get to everything last week, so we're basically splitting a sermon in two. We talked about the first half last week. Um, we're going to talk about the next half this week. So if, if you have no idea what's going on, I encourage you, go back and listen to what happened last week because it's the first half of this sermon, okay? And there's about a thousand different ways that you can listen to it. Um, I hate to plug social media too much, but our Facebook page has all of, all of our services still there, so you can go back and watch it there. You can go to our website. Our sermons are posted there. You go to Apple Podcasts. Our our sermons are posted there. They're on Spotify. Like, there's just about a thousand different ways you can listen. So if you don't, it's just because you don't want to. And that's, I suppose that's really up to you. But you're jumping into the middle of a sermon, which is why that says this is part two of a sermon. So I'd invite you, I'd encourage you, go back and listen to last week. And just so you know, last week's wasn't exactly G-rated. So um, this week we will be more G-rated. I think the only disclaimer I have to give is maybe a little bit of violence at some point. But... I'm excited for y'all to get to that part. So anyway, our high school kids all wanted to volunteer to be, uh, to be our demonstration today, and you'll just have to wait and see what's going on. Um, and just so you know, that's a joke. I, I told them I needed to volunteer for the service, and every one of them got really quiet and started doing this. <laughs> Except for the one who happened to come in at the wrong time. And I said, all I need is for somebody to stand here and look good. And, and Isaac's walking, and he goes, that's me. That's me. So he volunteered even though he didn't know what he was volunteering for. Um, then he backpedaled real quick. It was kind of funny, really. Uh, but you're coming into the middle of a sermon, and you're thinking, I just got here. Well, it's still the middle, so please go back, listen to last week's, um, because this week's sermon ought to make a little more sense in light of what we talked about last week, okay? Because this is all one big idea that Jesus is teaching on here in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so... I invite you to go back and listen to that. But last week, what we started talking about is this, this radically countercultural picture of morality that Jesus starts spelling out here in Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to know where we're going to be, Matthew chapter 5 is going to be our text. We're going to pick up in verse 30, 33, I believe, today. Uh, so if you want to open your Bible, I would invite you to do so. Um, but last week we talked about this, this countercultural picture of morality. And Jesus here, in this sermon, he begins by stressing the importance of reconciliation. He starts stressing the importance of reconciliation. And honestly, I wasn't terribly surprised by this, I guess. But this was a point I got a significant amount of pushback on last week. Um, I had several people comment on this point. Um, we don't like to do this. We really don't like to do this. Um, see, what we, what we are most able to do, and I'm guilty of this too, so please, if you think I'm talking about you, you're probably wrong. Um, I'm mostly talking about myself whenever I say this. We like to make this some abstract idea, and we try to apply it to somebody we've never met or that we've only heard of, and we try to apply it to these people way over there and say, but do I really have to like try to reconcile to them? Well, and while I certainly think we have an awful lot to learn, about expressing respect for God's image bearers, including those with whom we have strong disagreements, um, I, I think we need to be a little, a little more nearsighted than that. Um, and I think that makes sense, if I can explain just a little bit. Um, I think that we are often too short-sighted in only applying this to people who are over there. 
people who we have no real affiliation with, that we've never met, we've never even talked to, and we likely never will, but we've heard of them. See, instead, what I think we need to do is we need to apply this even to people who are here, like people in the room with you, people who we know, who we see on a weekly basis, these people who are a part of our community or a part of our church who have taken issue with something we've said or that we've done, and we need to strive for reconciliation with people. See, it's easy to make it abstract and talk about the people over there that I'm never going to meet. That's easy to do. What's hard to do is start thinking about what do my brothers and sisters right here in this room, have I wronged any of them to where they're upset about it, even if I'm not? And can I go reconcile with them? Can I be the one that starts by making peace? Can I be the one to initiate that? That's what we need to do. We must be peacemakers, and to the best of our ability, we should seek out reconciliation. And then we talked about how Jesus, he stresses this importance of purity, and here's where things got a little, um, a little off the rails. Um, he, Jesus demonstrated this in a few ways that, that, uh, that really show that our culture has a view of adultery that is far too narrow. See, we look at adultery and we say, well, it's infidelity within a marriage, right? Like the physical act of, of that. And Jesus says, no, no, it's bigger than that. If you look lustfully, then you're guilty of adultery. A lustful look makes you guilty. So we need to take radical steps, Jesus says, to protect ourselves from entertaining sin. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And the point he was making wasn't physical mutilation, but taking drastic and immediate steps to avoid temptation. Like, don't flirt with temptation. Flee from it. Do away with it. Don't entertain those ideas. And then we saw that Jesus, he ties this idea of adultery to, avort, to, to divorce. And in his culture, as well as ours, uh, there were incredibly permissive rules regarding divorce and remarriage and what could happen and what couldn't happen. And Jesus explains that divorce, really what it leads to is something that's tantamount to adultery. It's not what God designed. It's not what he intended. And all of that leads us then up to verse 33, where Jesus continues to show this countercultural view of morality as he sets out to give the true or the complete picture of the law and the prophets. Because remember, that's what Jesus is doing here. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus says, I, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the things that were said in the Old Testament. I came to fulfill them or fill them up. Like all of those things pointed you forward to me. And Jesus, as he's giving this radically different picture of morality, he says, look, all of this is pointing you to the truer, the more complete picture of the law that's found in me. That's what he's teaching here. So what does that look like practically? Jesus continues to spell that out, and I would like it if we could read God's word together. So would you all stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. So, it says, as Jesus is speaking here, he says again, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair, white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate, or I'm sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Now, I have to admit that as I uh, talked about this picture of reconciliation last week and um, these insults that are flying back and forth um, and starting to study this week, I I had a few moments where um, I had to repeatedly preach this same sermon to myself. Um, We don't, we're like, well, yeah, I know this. I know I shouldn't be insulting. I know I should love my enemies. I know I should do all this stuff. But then whenever it comes to real life, This is hard. Jesus isn't teaching something that's easy. He's teaching something that may sound simple, but it's incredibly difficult to practice. And the only way we can do that is is through his grace, through his mercy. So we need to follow after him. And we need to look at this countercultural view of morality. Okay, so Jesus starts showing this, and we talked about how he stresses the importance of reconciliation and the importance of purity last week. And then this week, as we pick up in verse 33, Jesus stresses the importance of truthfulness. He stresses the importance of truthfulness here. Verse 33, he says again, You have heard, it, heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but keep your oaths to the Lord. Okay, now see, at this point, there was a whole set of rules about what, what, what was and what was not binding on a person. A whole set of rules about when it was like, well, you actually have to do what you say you're going to do, and when you're like, well, maybe I can find a loophole here. Okay, there's this whole set of rules. For example, if someone was to swear by heaven or earth, it was not binding. It was not binding on a person. And here's the one that kills me. Uh, I read this week that if a person was to swear by Jerusalem, it was not binding on them. But if they were to swear toward Jerusalem, it was binding. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. I'll just be honest with you. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, if I swear by Jerusalem, well, that's not a binding agreement. But if I, say, if I swear toward Jerusalem, that is a binding agreement. I have no idea how all this works. I have no idea why it works. That's just, there's a whole system set up. A whole system to determine when a person was and was not bound to their oath. Um, D.A. Carson, actually, he wrote this. He said that an entire Mishnaic tract is given over to the subject shows that such distinctions became important and were widely discussed. There was a whole Mishnaic tract, a whole tract written about when an oath was and when an oath was not binding. People cared about, like, okay, how can I create a loophole? Like, here's, here's basically what happens. They say, well, no, I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by Jerusalem. And they're like, well, but see, listen, I didn't say I was swearing toward Jerusalem. No, I said I was swearing by Jerusalem. So the fact that I didn't keep my word, well, that's because I, I, I wasn't really bound by that oath. There's a loophole here. You hear that? That may sound like a minor distinction, but there is a loophole in that. There's a whole tract about when it was and was not binding. Y'all ever heard of loopholes? Like we twist one little word or we, we add a little clause at the end. 
just so that we have a way out if we don't really want to keep our word later on? Well, like, I'll do that unless. And then we spell out something that's crazy, like, unless this happens. And you're like, no, really, really, it happened. It happened. No, I, really. And then you have to swear again just to make sure that people know, like, no, I swear that this really happened. And we have this whole system. We do, even if it's not spelled out in some track somewhere. We have this whole system of when you have to keep your word and when you don't. And I'm going to make a loophole so I can get out of keeping my word, so I can be dishonest. But Jesus says here, Jesus says, But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. In other words, Jesus says, you shouldn't have to swear by anything for someone to know you're going to keep your word. You shouldn't have to swear by anything. And besides, you can't. You don't have the right to do that. We got some bankers in the room, so you're all going to appreciate this one. You all understand the concept of collateral, right? Collateral, right? So if I wanted to go to the bank and borrow money, they'd say, okay, so what are you going to put up as collateral against the money that we're going to give you? Okay, well, here's this, that, my car, my home, whatever it is, you put something up as collateral. Well, it's the same idea with oath-taking, right? So if I say, I swear by heaven that I'm going to do something, can I really swear by heaven? I have no authority to give somebody heaven if I break my oath. It's not mine. I can't do that. And that's what Jesus says. He says, you can't use heaven as collateral. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. Or how about by earth? Well, no, because that belongs to God too. It's his footstool. Well, how about, the, how about the city of the great king? You can't use Jerusalem either because that doesn't belong to you. Okay, well, surely I can at least swear by my life. Like, my life. This is mine, right? <laughs> Jesus says, nope, it doesn't belong to you either. Sorry. All right. How many of you in the room dye your hair? No, I'm just kidding. That's a, that's a joke. <laughs> Did you? Really? I thought that was natural, Mike. Oh, goodness. Okay, so <laughs> you can't make a single hair white or black. And some of you are saying, yes, I can. Yeah. No, you cannot. Not naturally, anyway. You cannot determine when your hair is white or black. You cannot make that determination. Your head does not belong to you. It's not yours. Ultimately, God has authority over your life. And not just part of your life, the entirety of your life. And that's what he's saying. Don't swear by your head. That was by saying, like, I swear on my life that this is true. You can't do that because your life doesn't belong to you. As followers of Jesus, we should certainly recognize that. We say that I know my life no longer belongs to me. Instead, it belongs to Jesus. Right? The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Does that sound familiar? I hope it does because that's straight out of the Bible. Like, it's not my life. It belongs to Jesus. It's His. So as Christians, we say our life doesn't even belong to us. So how can you swear by that? You don't have your life to give as collateral because it's not yours to give. It belongs to Jesus. So whenever we start swearing like by this or by that, we have no right to do so. Because in some way, there is always a connection to God. So Jesus says, the best solution, don't take an oath at all. Don't take an oath at all. See, the Pharisees here, they were more concerned with the form of the oath than with the keeping of the oath. They're more concerned with how we say something. But Jesus says, instead of being concerned about the form, instead, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. In other words, say what you mean and do what you say. That's, that's incredibly simple, right? Be honest. Tell the truth. 
When we constantly need to swear that we're telling the truth, really what that is is a dramatic indictment on our own tr trustworthiness, right? It's a dramatic indictment on my character if I have to constantly swear that I'm telling the truth. Y'all ever heard the story of the little boy who cried wolf? Y'all familiar with that? Yeah, you got it? Awesome. You talked about it at school, right? Okay, well, good, good. The little boy who cries wolf, he keeps coming down saying, well, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. And eventually they don't believe him anymore. Why? Because he lied again and again and again. And the whole point is, don't lie. Look, that's so simple. We're teaching our young children to do it, but then whenever we grow up, we're like, yeah, but I have a loophole. There's a, always an escape hatch. Yeah, but this happened. Instead, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Uh, John Stott, he says, swearing, i.e. oath-taking, is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. I thought that was well said. A pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Now, I have to admit that Stott goes further than I'm willing to, and he suggests that all forms of exaggeration or hyperbole and the use of superlatives are the equivalent of lying. Um, as somebody who likes to be sarcastic and poke fun at people, I got in trouble just this morning for poking fun at somebody who came through and said, oh, new doors. And I said, no, those have been there for a long time. No, I don't think so. No, those are new. So I was, I was teasing. Clearly, I was teasing. And I hope you all don't think I'm dishonest because I like to, I like to make jokes. But, uh, you know, I hope you don't think I'm being dishonest. But Stott goes that far. Now, I think that Stott is contradicting what Jesus just did because I told you last week, whenever he said, cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, he's being hyperbolic. He's using hyperbole. He's not being literal in that sense. So is Jesus lying? No, of course not. I think the use of some exaggeration or hyperbole is okay as long as your intention is clear. Now, when we're intending to deceive and we're clearly intending to deceive someone, I think we have a problem. But when we're, we can use these, these figures of speech for a purpose, and Jesus does just as much. The point that he's trying to make here is that the need to constantly swear by something for our word to be valid, it means that we're really being dishonest. We're constantly dishonest. So the question I have is, are you a person of your word? Are you a person of your word? When you say that something is true, is it really? Or you say you're going to accomplish something, are you really? Um, have you all ever heard somebody have to swear by something? Or uh, here's the expression that's always used. And I'm sure none of you ever say this. But we hear people say, I swear, I swear to God. You all ever heard that before? I'm sure none of you ever say that, so it's okay. You're off the hook. But really, what that is, is that's a confession of our own dishonesty. Like, people don't believe us whenever we just say something's true, so we have to swear by something. I'll give you an example um, of how this happens, okay? Um, this happens in my own home often because my wife, occasionally, she'll ask me to do something, and I'll, well, I kind of have a hard time saying no, so I agree uh, to do what she's asked me to with real intentions to do what she's asked me to do. But y'all... Those of you who know me well know I'm kind of forgetful. Um, so I'll be like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And then I just forget about it. Um, so really, then I don't do things, which means that sometimes whenever she asks me to do something, I have to apologize for not doing it in the first place whenever she asked me to and I said I would. But then even more than that, I have to apologize because then I have to say, no, I really will. I promise you I will get to it. I promise you I will do that. And instead of just saying, yes, I will, it's turned into, well, my own dishonesty has made it to where I have to promise something. I have to say, no, I really will do this. Instead, what I need to do is a better job of letting my yes mean yes and my no mean no. Whatever we say we're going to do something, do it. 
If you say you're not going to, then don't. Just let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Now, a quick note, does this mean that all taking of oaths is forbidden? Um, because there are groups who have even said that this applies to law courts and you should never even take an oath in the court of law. Um, and this has been debated amongst Christians, and there are some groups, including those like Jehovah's Witnesses, who say, well, you can't even swear an oath in, in the court of law. Okay, so should you do that, should you not? Um, I'll tell you my opinion. I think it's foolish to think that you can never take an oath, even in those circumstances, um, because God himself in the Bible swears. Um, he takes oaths. Uh, for example, Luke chapter 1, verse 72 and 73, it says, God has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God can't sin, y'all. So I don't think it's wrong to swear an oath at times. The point is, as a general rule, if you say something, let that mean yes or no. Okay, so we should let our word be binding. The question then is, how countercultural is this? Is this really countercultural? Right, we're teaching, we're teaching Judah the the story of of. Hey Judah, I see you, man. Yeah, we're we're teaching like the little boy who cried wolf, right? So we're teaching kids to be honest. So is it really that countercultural? And I would argue, yes, it's very countercultural to be honest. I think it's very countercultural. See, we live in a society that while not outright championing the lies, we do champion those who lie and cheat to get where they are. We certainly champion those people. We build them up as if they're the picture of what we should strive to be. But how do they become that person? Oftentimes it's through lies. Um, I really want to make a political joke, but I should probably just let it go at this point. Um, Y'all get the point. People will lie to get what they want. They will say whatever it takes to get you to believe in them. And that's not a left-wing or right-wing argument. That's a person argument. People lie to get where they want to go. And we, as the church, must be different. If we say yes, let it mean yes. If we say no, let it mean no. We should be people of our word. So Jesus stresses the importance of truthfulness. And then he stresses the importance of forgiveness. He stresses the importance of forgiveness here. Verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is right. I hope they've heard that said because it's mentioned all over the Old Testament. Okay, for example, Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 and 24. It says, if there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. That's what you must do, he says. Okay, Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 and 20. It says, if any man inflicts a permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. And just so you know, basically the same thing is written in Deuteronomy 19, 21. So three times in the first five books of the Bible, we get this, pr this principle of retribution spelled out very clearly. So it is a biblical concept. It certainly is. Three times in the first five books of the Bible, it's there. Now, does that mean that Jesus here with his teaching is contradicting the Old Testament? No, no. Instead, what he's doing, as we've talked about the last couple weeks, he's showing the complete or a more mature picture of what the Old Testament was there for, what the law was given for. Weren't people supposed to adhere to the Old Testament law? Of course. But let's talk about what the purpose of this law of retribu retribution was. That's a hard word to say. Retribution. Whew. What was the purpose? Well, the purpose was to point us to something better or more complete, namely Jesus, right? See, there are times when God gives law, gives his law, because it was good to do so. It was good to do so. Other times he does so as a concession because of the wicked nature of men. 
He does so out as a concession because of the wicked nature of men. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use an example. And again, before I use this example, I'm not trying to pick on anything. This is just one that most people know. And that's divorce. He uses that as an example in Matthew 19, verse 8. It says, He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like this from the beginning. Instead, that concession was there to curb our desires. And before, well, if you didn't love your wife, well, what do you do? You just get rid of her. Instead, Moses gave a law saying you have to give her a written letter to protect her. So that she could remarry and she would have some way of, of earning income. I mean, a husband was basically their only standing in society. So if a woman wasn't able to remarry, well, then she was going to starve to death. She didn't have much hope. So what did Moses do? Well, Moses permitted them to divorce their wives because of the hardness of their hearts. He made concession as a protection. It was to curb their desires in some way. So this lex talionis, this law of retribution, it was intended to make you more like Jesus. It was intended to keep you from harming someone else. That was the whole idea of this law being given. It wasn't so that you could say, well, you wronged me, you hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you in return. The reason this law was given was to stop you from hurting somebody in the first place. It was so that you would treat people well. That was the whole purpose of this law. John Piper, he writes, God gives by concession a legal regulation as a dam against the river of violence which flows from a man's evil heart. That's vivid language. He gives this concession as a dam against a river of violence. See, this whole idea of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, really it's just to curb men's evil nature. They want to hurt one another. We will naturally want to hurt somebody else. And if somebody wrongs us, we're not only going to want to get even, we're going to want to go beyond that. That's what's natural for us. Instead, God gives us regulation so that we are no longer striving to hurt somebody. Instead, we're striving to keep from hurting somebody. That's the goal. And Jesus says, in verse 39, he says, But I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. Don't resist an evildoer. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it's difficult to understand unless we continue on and we look at the examples Jesus gives and says, here's how this plays out in real life. Here's how this plays out. And he says, continuing on, it says, On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And what Jesus does here is he gives four examples. Of how this plays out, excuse me. Four examples of how this plays out. And the first one is a fun one. He says, if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, um, this is where I need my volunteer. Anybody? Any of my high school, high school guys? Nobody's jumping up? Anybody want to get slapped on the right cheek? No? Uh, aren't these guys a buzzkill? See, I even asked one, one of our guys is a wrestler. I thought he would like getting into an altercation here. Can, can I borrow you, Caleb? Y'all know Caleb, right? Caleb's a good guy. Yeah, go ahead and give him a round of applause. You're going to do it again here in a minute. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. Isn't he good looking? Which, okay, now I know you go to Rockport, so work with me here. Which way's right? I'm, I'm messing with you. Okay, so, so this is your right side. That's your right side, right? Okay, so now that's, this is his right side, okay? So if I was going to slap him on, on his right cheek, most, how many of y'all are right-handed? Okay, that's easily a majority. That's easily a majority. So most people are right-handed, which means if I was to slap you, I promise it won't hurt bad, okay? <laughs> if, 
If I was going to slap him on his right cheek, I could not do that with my left hand. My left hand doesn't work, right? So if I was to come right here, just going to wind up. He's just got like this cold stare, like, just don't do it. Like, just don't. I'm going to have to hurt you in return, and I'm old. So, okay, so if I was going to slap him on his right cheek, it would have to be with my right hand. I can't use my left hand to do that, so it would be like this on his right cheek, right? That's a backhand slap. You all know that's an insult, right? That's the point that Jesus made. Can we give him a round of applause? I didn't even hit him once. Thank you. Yeah, see, I told you it wouldn't be that bad. Just mostly embarrassing. Um, So the whole point is it would be a backhand slap which was intended to be an insult. I mean, y'all ever heard fight like a man? Y'all ever heard that? It's not even what it is. That's not the point. It's not to hurt somebody. It was to insult somebody. That's what this slap was intended to be. So, if somebody slaps you or insults you, what he's saying is, turn the other cheek as well. Instead of returning fire or coming back and just shouting insults back at the other person, you take that graciously and lovingly and you love them in return. Instead of thinking, well, i got to get even, instead we think, okay, what have I been forgiven of? And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Does that mean that we, can, we just have to sit here and take a beating and we can't fight back or even flee from a fight? No, of course not. That's not the point Jesus is trying to make. If somebody hits me in the face, I'm probably going to try to restrain them and stop them from doing it again. That's just wise. Like, it would be silly just to sit there and let somebody physically assault you. That's not smart. Instead, what Jesus is saying is somebody insults you. If somebody insults you, then you turn the other cheek. You absorb that insult and you love them in return. Rather than getting angry and retaliating, we should be gentle even with those who insult us. Why? Well, because Jesus was our example. Right? Clear back in the prophet Isaiah, all the way back in Isaiah's book, writing of one that was going to come, he said, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Jesus is our example. You know who took more humiliation, took more insults than us? Jesus did. Jesus did. The one, then he goes on. That's the first example. The one who slaps you on your right cheek. Okay, turn the other. Second example he gives is the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt. Give your coat to him as well. Again, I don't think that Jesus is being literal. I think he's using hyperbole again. It would be seriously strange to see a whole bunch of first century naked Christians out running around because somebody sued them for their shirt and they gave them their coat to and they have no more coverings. I don't think that's the point. Instead, what Jesus is showing here is, is it was not to stand by idly while someone takes away all of your possessions, but to endure the insult with grace and mercy toward other people. Just... Okay, somebody wants to harm you? Okay, love them in return. Love them in return. Don't get mad and try to get even. Love them in return. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. See, the Roman military at this time could commandeer civilians, basically to carry their luggage. So they didn't have these massive moving caravans like we think of today. You know, you got the military trucks running down the highway, taking all their supplies. They didn't have that. So instead, Roman military could commandeer civilians and say, you're going to carry this. But they, they were limited. They could only carry that. They could only force them to carry their luggage one Roman mile. One Roman mile. And what Jesus says here then is, if somebody, even somebody who is a, as opposed to you as the Roman government is to the Jewish people, because the Jewish people saw them as an oppressor. 
So even if somebody is oppressing you and they force you to go with them a mile, he says, go with them too. Even if they insult you and belittle you and show you that you're not worth anything, even if they oppress you, you love them in return. That's what Jesus shows them. Even those who place an undue burden on you. And then the final example he gives is someone who wants to borrow from you. Rather than being vindictive and holding back from someone who has wronged you, be generous to them. And the point of all of these, the point of all of these examples together, that shows us what it means to not resist an evildoer. Don't resist an evildoer, Jesus says. It involves a completely countercultural view of forgiveness. See, we look at those people and are like, well, you know what? Those people who have wronged me, I'm, I'll show them. I, I will get even. Uh, you know what? They hit me, I'm going to hit them back. They insult me, I'm going to insult them back. They try to make me go with them a mile, I'm going to force them to pay for that. One way or another, we think that we need to get even, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, you need to forgive them and you need to love them anyway. John, stop. Again, he says, what Jesus here demands of all his followers is a personal attitude to evildoers which is prompted by mercy, not justice, which renounces retaliation so completely as to risk further costly suffering, which is governed neither by the desire to cause them harm, but always by the determination to serve their highest good. We should strive to serve the highest good of others, even those who are opposed to us. That's radically countercultural. We don't want to serve their highest good. We want to get even. Jesus says, no, no, no. We serve their highest good. We turn the other cheek. We go the extra mile. We do whatever we can to love them, even when they've wronged us. We extend mercy toward those who oppose us. Y'all, that's not easy to do. And I believe it takes God's grace working in us to be able to do that. But that's what Jesus says his followers will do. We'll follow after him as he does this. So Jesus here, he stresses the importance of truthfulness and forgiveness. And then third, Jesus, I guess it's actually fifth because this is a two-part sermon. So here's, here's the fifth. Jesus stresses the importance of love. He stresses the importance of love. Now, y'all are thinking, oh, the importance of love. Uh, let's see what it sounds like, though. Verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And unfortunately, this is how many, even professing Christians, are content to live. Loving our neighbor, those who are near us, those who think like us, those, those who we consider to be our neighbors because, you know what, they come to the same church building and they do pretty much the same stuff as us all the time and they think like we do, they talk like we do. That's our neighbor. Those are the people we're going to love. And we effectively hate our enemies then. Those people who are opposed to us, who think differently than us, we're like, okay, yeah, but they think this. Those evil people over there do this and that and the other, and we want to call them fools and stupid, and we want to do all this stuff, and we want to hate them. That's how we naturally act, right? Am I alone in that? Because that's how I feel oftentimes. And I catch myself constantly thinking about those people who are opposed to me, who are different than me, and I, it's just easy for me to hate them. I don't have to try at that. That just happens. But Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But he says... He says something different, right? Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. All right, I didn't tell Steve this was coming, but I like to use this line, and I like to say it's not all about you. All right, y'all ever heard me say that? If not, you've only been here for like a week. Yeah, see that? It's not about me. But see, here's the thing. 
Today it is about you, okay? Today it is about you, and it's not about them. It's not about what your enemies say. It's not about what your enemies do. It's about how you respond to them. It's not about what they do. Loving your enemy has nothing to do with what your enemy does. It has to do with you and what God has done in you. It has nothing to do with what they've done, what they've said, how they've insulted. It's about you and what you've been commanded to do by the grace of God. It's about you and what, how we respond. See, if it's not about how they treat you. It's about how we behave whenever they do what they do. How we respond. See, he doesn't just say, don't hate your enemies. See, that would be one thing. You say, well, don't hate your enemies. No, no, no. He says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, in, y'all, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard something about the word agape, right? This is the word that's used here. Agape. Like this self-sacrificing love. Like laying down my rights for the good of somebody else. That's the love that he uses here. He says, agape your enemies. Love your enemies. Lay down your rights to give to your enemies. See, we as Christians, we must show love not only to those with whom we agree and we like, but the people who are directly opposed to us. See, Jesus actually says, he says, for for God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God, the God who we claim to belong to, is kind and gracious to the righteous and the unrighteous. We're saying we're following Jesus. You know who Jesus was kind and gracious to? His friends and his enemies. All of them. And if we're following him, you know what that means we'll do? It means we'll be kind and we'll be gracious to those people. See, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. And I'm not saying pray like a lot of us want to pray. See, the most natural thing would be like, God, I pray that you would punish them for the way they behave. The problem with that is they could very easily pray that in return for you. And I don't want that. I don't want that. See, what he says here is we love and we pray for enemies. And by the way, as you love your enemies, you're going to pray for them more. And as you pray for your enemies, you're going to grow in love for them. Why? Because you're asking God to show his mercy on them just like he's shown his mercy on you. Extend that mercy. Verse 46, he says, For if you love those who love you, What reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Look, if we just love those people who love us, everybody does that. That's not countercultural. That's what everybody does. It's really easy to love those people who love you in return. It's really easy to be kind to those people who are kind to you. It's really difficult to love those people who are opposed to you. Jesus is calling for something that's countercultural. Something that's different. If we're only good and kind and merciful to those we love or those who love us, we're no different than the rest of the world. No different. And we must be different. D.A. Carson, um, he was talking about what this looks like, what this love looks like, and how we might love a friend, but how that's really selfishness. Um, He says this. He says, in loving his friends, a man may in a certain sense be only loving himself, a kind of expanded selfishness. Jesus will not condone this. The life of the old fallen humanity is based on rough justice, avenging injuries and returning favors. The life of the new redeemed humanity is based on divine love, refusing to take revenge, but overcoming evil with good. 
Y'all, that's what we should strive for. Overcoming evil with good. Not rough justice, returning favors, making people get what they deserve. Because the truth is, I haven't been given what I deserve. And I thank God for that. We must be different. Jesus here, he stresses the importance of reconciliation, purity, truthfulness, forgiveness, love. So what? Well, verse 28, or sorry, verse 48 um, Jesus kind of concludes these six antitheses, these, these pictures that we look at here, these contrasts that we've looked at over the last two weeks, and he does it in one sentence. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, you want to know what this love looks like? Well, be like the Father. Be like him. In other words, have a more complete, a more mature picture of what true morality looks like. Jesus says, I'm going to help you to see more clearly. Here's, here's what it looks like. You hate somebody? You're angry with somebody? That's tantamount to murder. He says, don't hate and be angry. He said, forgive. Be reconciled to brothers or sisters. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. He says, but look, it's bigger than just a physical act. It's so much more than that. He says it's about pursuing purity, and he goes through truthfulness and forgiveness and love, and he shows what these things look like. He says, look, you want to know what these look like? Watch my life. I came to fulfill these things, to fill them up, to be the perfect picture of what this looks like. Jesus says, that's the standard. The question is, can any of us keep these six antitheses perfectly? Is this some unobtainable, perfect picture that we can strive for but never really obtain? Is that what this is? Or... Is this something that we should actually pursue? And I think the answer is yes. Um, is this something we can obtain? No, I don't think it is. I think it is unobtainable. But as we follow Jesus, we will strive by his power that works in us to walk more closely with him. And he did perfectly fulfill all these things. We'll be more like our master. We'll be more like Jesus. And this means that we will seek out reconciliation, that we will pursue purity, that we will desire to be honest, that we will forgive others, and that we will love even when it's difficult or costly. We will still love even when it's hard. And all of that is because Jesus did that and so much more for you. So much more for you. All of this happens because of the life of Jesus who we claim to follow. Because he came and he took our hearts of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. Truth is, on your own, your heart doesn't want this. I just told you, my heart, I want to get even. That's what my heart does. But if he takes our hearts of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, it looks very, very different. And in doing that, he enables us to follow him so we can go against the grain. The question then is, will you follow Jesus and live out this countercultural picture of morality? Will you follow after him and be like him? Let's pray. <clears throat> Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I have to admit that whenever I come to this, this text, I struggle. Um, Lord, even as you reminded me again and again this week how much I just want to be mad and I want to say no and treat people poorly and say, no, I've got to get what I deserve. Um, Lord, you've reminded me again and again that it's not about me. Instead, it's about responding the way that you responded. It's about loving the way that you've loved. It's about doing what only you can do. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in me, and I pray that you would work in our church, that you would work in us and as individuals, and you would make us more like Jesus. Father, and I pray that you would help us to pursue reconciliation, that we would pursue purity, that we would be an honest people. 
um, that we would be people who forgive because we've been forgiven of so much. Lord, and I pray that we would love, not because we're able to on our own, but because you first loved us. So, Lord, make us more like Jesus. Um, Father, for some of us in this room, I'm sure uh, we haven't actually surrendered to that. We haven't actually laid down our lives and said, yes, I'm going to follow after Jesus. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you would impress on, on our hearts the need, the need that we have to be forgiven. Lord, and I pray that you would show us that forgiveness just as we should, should forgive those around us. So, Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would work in us, that you would do what only you can do, and that you would change hearts and lives forever. So, Father, help us to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.